The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. But some of the stuff that's been put into this document is actually very disheartening. Um, some of the stuff that's been left off this document is equally disheartening. It's, it's not possible to get to where they have without diminishing the voice of women, and that's frustrating. So just a couple of days ago, we saw the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, release their new guidelines on transgender athletes, and uh, they are controversial. They were much expected after the guidelines of 2015, and uh, uh, it has been greeted with a fair amount of skepticism from some. It's been welcomed by others. Um, but to bring me us up to speed and with somebody who probably knows this uh, this debate more than most, uh, Professor Ross Tucker is with me all the way from London. I'm based in Cape Town at the moment, but Ross is at a conference in London. I think it's a World Rugby Conference, isn't it, Ross? Yeah, it's our, it's our annual general meeting for medicine and science and research. So I am here <laughs> until next week. Well, it feels like in Cape Town it's kind of English weather because it's nice and rainy here, but I imagine that it's getting a bit colder in London at the moment. I went uh, I went on the bike the other day. I cycled from my sister's place just outside London down to Brighton, you know, from the from from London to the beach and back. And I did not I did not have five minutes of dry in six and a half hours. It was the most <laughs> it was the most miserable six and a half hours I've had on a bike ever. It sucked. <laughs> Well, you've been doing a bit of traveling uh, over the last couple of weeks, and I know that you've been doing a lot of interviews with some of our coaches, which uh, many of you who are regular listeners to our podcast will have listened to some of those uh, fascinating interviews around all sorts of subjects. So look back on the last couple of podcasts, and you'll see some very interesting podcasts focusing particularly on the role of coaches and coaches who specialize in certain areas. But I mean, Ross, you have experienced a lot of stuff, uh, particularly on your bike. I've seen you riding in the snow in Switzerland and uh, experiencing some quite extreme uh, um, conditions the last couple of weeks yeah, it snowed everywhere i went and i thought let me see how this goes on my gravel bike and i made it 20 meters in i said no i'm gonna go for hot chocolate or something instead so my <laughs> fitness is poor it's too much food and too many drinks and so i'm looking forward to coming back home to summer well, I suppose that's the reason why we see in Europe a lot of the uh, the growth of indoor cycling on Zwift and Ruby and all sorts of full gas, um, because I guess in England and uh, in Europe in, during the winter, it's quite tricky to get on the bike. But anyway, let's get on to the subject at hand at the moment, and it is that uh, re- recent uh, set of guidelines published by the International Climate Committee. Ross, just a sort of first takes on it, what were your initial thoughts when you re- read the guidelines? I was... I'd say I started reading this document. It's a uh, it's a six-page document, and I get through the first page. Nothing surprising. That's exactly as anticipated. Second page, they start introducing these principles. I suppose we'll discuss them shortly. And it's, again, this is exactly... We've had enough in the last two months from the IOC where people have spoken about what's imminent that I think what came out was fairly predictable. But anyway, then I get down to page four, and I see no presumption of advantage uh, suddenly this becomes frustrating and irritating to me it's we we had a we had an opportunity i think in the world of sport to to consolidate what i think has been quite good work in the last six months to maybe even going back a year to world rugby's if i can be presumptuous enough to, to claim that but some of the stuff that's been put into this document is actually very disheartening um, some of the stuff that's been left off this document is equally disheartening. And I think it comes from the same place. This is a, in my opinion, this is a politically influenced, cowardly, unscientific document. Is that, 
is that direct enough? <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, how do you really feel about this? I mean, let, let's just take a step back. And, and, and you mentioned just a few moments ago around what World Rugby has done in terms of this debate. And obviously the debate is, should transgender athletes be able to participate in female sport? And there's obviously, we'll get into the, the various subjects and we have discussed this in past podcasts. And there's also one of the guidelines released by um, the, the, the IOC is the fact that, they, that these transgender athletes no longer have to be required to reduce their testosterone levels which is obviously another facet to what we're talking about but if you look at what world rugby has done give us an idea about what world rugby's guidelines are at the moment as a sort of starting point yeah so we brought our guidelines out in october last year so they're just over a year old and the headline piece is that transgender women cannot currently play women's rugby and the reason is that the physiology of male development creates biological, physiological attributes that we believe, based on all the evidence we reviewed, and there's a lot, realistic safety and performance concerns for biological females. So the influence of male hormones through the process of male development would undermine the integrity of women's competition. And in a sport like rugby, where it is so heavily contact and collision-based, would create inherent safety risks for those who did not benefit from those androgen, which is a word meaning male-making hormones. So we, mm. we, and we arrived at that point having consulted, read the, read the research, we heard from a number of people from different domains, and we're quite confident that that was the scientifically valid place to, to land. Um, uh, uh, yeah, so let me, let me stop there. Yeah, I mean, when you say scientifically, I mean, this is obviously the, the key to this because the, the IOC have obviously claimed some sort of scientific basis. In fact, they're quoted as saying it's based on science. But World Rugby, when you say science, in other words, was there studies done to show that transgender athletes still have an advantage? I mean, are those, are those, are those scientific papers out there and, and are they numerous? Yes and yes. So there are over a dozen, I think there are 13 now, there were 12 at the time we met and one other one came out earlier this year, where transgender women, so in a normal procedure of reassigning from male to female, the, the typical treatment is the suppression of testosterone. And that's the same thing that the policy was trying to capitalize on in 2015. It's what World Rugby was doing as a member federation of the Olympic Committee. So the premise was, that you could effectively, quote, unquote, fix the disparity or the problem, as it were, this, this male advantage, which I don't think anyone would disagree exists. I, I would hope nobody listening to this would dispute the fact that males have sports performance advantages. And thus, we have to create and defend a category that excludes that male advantage. And that category is women's sports. So at, at the most fundamental le level possible, that a category in sport exists to ensure fairness by excluding something that would otherwise make it unfair. Yeah. Makes easy enough. Yep. Makes sense. And so in the same way that we have weight categories in boxing to exclude heavy people from potentially killing literally uh, small fighters, we have age categories to prevent adults from dominating against children who haven't yet matured. We have Paralympic categories that achieve the same thing. We have a sex category and, so, so the category is by definition exclusionary. That's its purpose. It's to exclude something. And that something was testosterone. So anyway, that's a, that's a slight digression. Uh, this, what the studies have done 
is they have observed the changes in things like muscle mass, bone mass and density, body fat, and in some instances, strength and performance in certain tasks over the course of 12 to 36 months, depending on the study, of testosterone suppression that is typically used. Now, what sport had tried to do was to, to say that if you lower your testosterone, you will take away the advantage and we can balance fairness and inclusion. We can include you despite the fact that you had past tense male advantages because taking the testosterone away would have taken those advantages away. But the evidence from those now 13 studies is fairly conclusive that that does not happen. So there is very little evidence that the typical male advantage is removed by testosterone suppression. It is reduced to some degree, but where, for instance, lean mass was 30% higher to begin with, you only take away maybe 5 to 10%, which means that there is a retention of a significant part of that advantage. And the, the world rugby process came about because I came on board and, and, and there was this growing awareness. There were studies that were coming out. And in 2019, a, a, a very good one from Stockholm came out. And we said, actually, we have to respond to this because there's now evidence that says that this, uh, this act of lowering the testosterone does not do what it says it does. And we need to respond to it. So, so yes, the evidence is fairly clear. And that's what informed our decision. Where there is, for the sake of completeness, where there is a question is, how would that picture look in a highly trained trans woman prior to suppression? Because none of these studies have looked at elite athletes, trans, trans women. So there's a, there's a gap there, but there's no, there's no biological basis at all to think that an elite, elite athlete would behave differently from a non-elite athlete or an, even an untrained person. And if anything, you can make the case that athleticism will help defend some of those advantages that, that were provided by testosterone. So for us, it was a very clear scientific question. And I've said, uh, not just since then, but even before, that this is not a difficult scientific question. It's an ethical conundrum, no doubt. And it's got social um, complexities, but scientifically, it's actually quite straightforward. I mean, it, it definitely, I mean, from the outside looking into this debate, it looks like a very easy one to talk about. I was actually having a discussion with a local um, organizer here of a cycling race, and uh, he was saying that um, there'd been a question from a transgender athlete participating in the tandem category who said they were they still eligible to be racing in the tandem category as as transgender uh, women, um, and would they then be there available, you know, for prizes if they won that division? And on that level, it's fairly easy to make that decision. I wonder if you could put your sort of hat on and say, if you were the IOC and you were trying to defend this, what do you think the IOC's argument is? Because is there science in that in those guidelines? Have they done some scientific research? Have they quoted scientific papers? And if not, what is the basis on which they are making these decisions? Well, I said at the outset there, um that the that there was things in the document that really disappointed and frustrated me and that there was something that wasn't and the thing that's not in that document is a statement of fact which is that transgender women based on all available evidence retain advantages even after the suppression of testosterone they, they have not yet brought themselves to say that they ignored it when they first did their document they ignored it in 2015 and they've continued to ignore it now and it's not that they don't know because 
we've spoken with them about it and they know mm-hmm. but they can't but why bring... would why would they ignore it why would they ignore it because their their imperatives are I'll say upside down because I, <laughs> I believe ours are the right way up. And what I mean by that is that sport has an obligation to balance or not to, let me actually, that's exactly the wrong word. Sport has an obligation to manage three different imperatives. It has to ensure inclusion. It, it has to be an open space because you want people to play it. So for, yeah. for rugby, who I'm here with now, we want people to play the sport. So we have a priority to grow the game and include people. We also have a priority to ensure fairness. So that's why we manage the rules. <laughs> that's yeah. why we have age categories. That's why we have World Cups that have to be run in a certain way. And that is why we have women's rugby. So that's fairness. And then the final thing is we have a priority to ensure player safety. That, in fact, is the is the purpose of this conference. And I mean, we've just had a session this morning on how are we going to look after the brain health of players given the evidence of potential negative outcomes as a consequence of playing the sport. So now you've got these three imperatives, right? You've got fairness, safety, and inclusion. And the question is, pick the order that you're going to rank them in. What's your priority? And for rugby, that it was clear. It's, it's player safety is the number one priority. Then comes fairness. Then comes inclusion. So that drove our assessment of the research, because if you cannot fulfill your number one obligation based on the available scientific evidence, then you can't have the inclusion. All the language from the IOC going back to 2003 and especially in 2015 reverses that that ranking order. And they talk about inclusion as the priority. And it's the same in this document. That's why they downplay the science is because the science is incompatible with their desired ranking of what they're trying to get in out of sport. And so you see this because when you look at this document, they have principles. The first one is inclusion. That's not accidental. Yeah. The fir- in fact, not even the first principle, the first line of the document says every person has the right to practice sport without discrimination and in a way that respects their health, safety, and dignity. So the tone is set from the very first sentence And then the very first principle follows on and it says inclusion. Everyone, regardless of gender identity, should be able to participate in sports safely and without prejudice. Now, I don't disagree with that. And I would hope nobody disagrees with that. The question is, do you have the right to participate in any category of your choice? That's the problem. And I don't think they've, I don't think they've, they've brought themselves and I don't know why. I'm guessing now, you know, is it pressure from various groups? Are they worried about litigation and accusations of discrimination? I don't know, but they, they have, they've got the order wrong is the short answer. So, I mean, we weren't sitting in a meeting when they were deciding these things, but what you're saying then is that the, that the, pre- the predominant philosophy behind what the ISC are doing is, is about inclusion. Therefore, by create, if they were going to do something which excluded certain athletes, it would go against principles of the Olympic, of the Olympic Committee. Um, and I, I, I guess, as you say, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a complex task for them in that respect because they've always been seen as the as the one sporting body that's always about inclusivity whether it's a, a smaller nation participating in the Olympic Games even though they're not necessarily having competitive athletes it's always about participation rather than necessarily always at the top end um, but what you're saying is that 
they, they've they've almost taken that principle and let it override everything else that is coming after that. Yes, that's that's. I mean, that is a, that is the simple one sentence summary of what I suspect has mm. happened here. And it's they've been confused on this from the start because the, the 2015 document literally said the words: "The overriding sporting objective is and remains the guarantee of fair competition." So in that document, they they put fairness up front. Yeah. But then they follow it on and they say that what we want is inclusion, and. The evidence suggests, and this is the key point I was trying to make earlier, I don't think I, I got to it eventually, is that you cannot achieve those two things together. That's the problem. Yeah. The, 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 the premise had been that the suppression of testosterone would allow you to include and be fair and thus safe, because fairness and safety are, are hand in hand. The, the scientific evidence blows that concept away. You, you cannot do it. Therefore, you must pick. You cannot balance. That's why when I used the word balance earlier, it was entirely the wrong word. But yeah. just to, to give you some indication, in, in 2016, um, a scientist who'd been a scientist and doctor who'd been on their medical commission said, and I'm quoting again, it has become much more of a social issue than in the past. We had to review and look into this from a new angle. We needed to adapt to the modern legislation around the world. We felt we cannot impose a surgery if that's no longer a legal requirement. That's because they, they took surgery out. And it is an adaptation to a human rights issue. This is an important matter. It is a trend of being more flexible and more liberal. Now, many listeners will say, oh, well, this is just another symptom of the over-liberalization of the world. That's a political mm -hmm. thing I don't feel like delving into. But that, that quote for me captures the fogginess with which they were addressing this issue. Because, yes... It, has a, it is a social issue, and sport does want to reflect society. But we can't just do that at the expense of women. And, 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 the other, and so, so on that note, the other thing that's missing from this document is, is a transparency about who they spoke to and what they decided to overlook. Because when we did it for World Rugby, we published everything. All the evidence and the presentations that were shared with us, we we disclosed exactly who was at the meeting and who was representing which sides of the debate. The, the IOC document does not mention a thing. They only say that they consulted widely. But to arrive at the position that they have, they have to have ignored women's voices. It's, it's not possible to get to where they have without diminishing the voice of women. And that's frustrating for those women. I know that because I've received messages and, and even on social media from advocacy groups that have tried to get a seat at the table who've tried to put their views in front of the IC and they cannot get them heard yeah I mean what's interesting in the story on the Guardian uh, by our friend of the pod Sean Lingle he talks about he talked to Joanna Harper who's a visiting fellow for transgender athletic performance at Loughborough University and she's uh, she talks specifically um, and actually comes out against the thing. She says it's important that the IOC has come out in favor of inclusion of trans and intersex athletes, but I think sections five and six of the framework are problematic. Um, she herself is a transgender woman and a competitive athlete, and she says transgender women are on average taller, bigger, and stronger than CIS women, and these are advantages in many sports. I mean, I think that's, that's also a key, is that certain sports, obviously, 
there is more of an effect for transgender athletes, as you already mentioned with rugby, but maybe with other sports, there is less of an effect um, by, of, the, of this ongoing issue around transgender women being able to participate. Yeah, and that's a really important point. And, and the, one, the one thing that this document yesterday from the IRC does that I think is right and justifiable is to say that every sports federation should really look at their own situation and develop their own policies. Uh, when we when we decided to to tackle the issue in 2020, beginning of the year, um, there were many people within World Rugby who were nervous that we'd be going against the currents of the IOC because mm. you know rugby had just become an Olympic sport, so we were effectively one of the newest members of that family, and people were quite concerned that we we would do this and be breaking rank. And so we actually reached out to them and said, "Look, would you be happy with us?" And they said. Absolutely. In fact, we hope that eventually every federation goes the same way. So even then, that this was clearly going to happen. And it's right, because, because the physiological requirements of different sports would differ widely. And therefore, the influence of being biologically male would differ between them. And as a consequence, those three imperatives, fairness, safety, inclusion, might look slightly different. That's why... The, the, the previous big document, which was the UK Sports Council document that was released, oh, it must have been about a month ago, maybe a little more, six weeks. It was so good because it, it explained exactly how sports should consider those three issues. And it said that if you were a collision or a combat sport, then safety was your maybe your main priority. Yeah. If you had no collision, no contact, and potentially didn't even put competitors up against one another there was swimming for instance you, you you're in a separate lane then safety becomes less important but fairness is the thing that you have to address as a priority so that was a very clear helpful document this one this one isn't and just on the notes of joanna harper you know she was she was very influential in the development of the ioc's original trans guidelines because she had done a study that had looked at how endurance running performance changed when testosterone was suppressed. And she'd argued that it, it, it was diminished by about 10%, which as listeners would know, is the male female difference. So mm -hmm. males are typically the typical male or the best male performance matched male is 10% faster than, than a female. Her, her study suggested that that advantage was entirely removed and that was the basis for achieving fairness and inclusion at the same time. That, that study has got a number of flaws in it, which I don't know, we don't need to go into right now. And I think has since been displaced by a, a body of much better, more controlled long-term research instead of this, what we call a, a sort of cross-sectional observation study. Um, so it's interesting that she objected to those points. That five, points five and six Incidentally, are the, are the two most problematic in the document, not the only ones, but they are they're really, really frustrating. Yeah. One of the things she actually mentions, she says, it is unreasonable to ask the sports federations to have robust and peer-reviewed research before placing restrictions on trans, trans athletes in elite sports. Such research will take years, if not decades. And that's also quite an interesting point, is that now they put the burden onto the individual sports, knowing full well that they have to prove that there is, as you say, that, that the proof is on the person who is against the transgender athletes. And that research, you guys have done it all rugby but it takes years of research to do that particularly with the nuances of certain sports 
and that's and that's why as i read this document i got to point five and 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 my um <laughs> purple mist red mist whatever you want to call it <laughs> the hackles rose so so just to explain point five says no presumption of advantage and then point six says evidence-based approach so those two things are linked together and what they've said here is an it's an extraordinary outflanking maneuver in a legal sense because it effectively reverses the burden of proof that that's the problem so in in legal terms you know the burden of proof is who has to prove it do and in this case do women have to prove that trans athletes have an advantage or do trans athletes have to prove that they don't that's and that's a really important question because depending on which of those you pick the evidence is going to have to come at it from the opposite direction, if that makes sense, right? Yeah. Now, in a scientific sense, that this determines your null hypothesis. So you, you can argue this legally or, or scientifically. If I'm a scientist and I'm looking at this, my, my starting hypothesis is the transgender women retain advantages compared to natal females and therefore should not be allowed to compete. That's the, that's the world rugby policy right there. Um, so the question really is, should the science disprove that or should should trans women have to disprove that? I think, yes, they should. Or should yeah. women have to now prove that actually it is unfair? And they have literally said, and I'm reading again from their document, no athlete should be precluded from competing or excluded from competition on the ground of an unverified, alleged or perceived unfair competitive advantage. Until evidence determines otherwise, athletes should not be deemed to have an unfair or disproportionate competitive advantage due to their transgender status. They are literally saying that unless you can prove that transgender women have an advantage, you have to let them compete. So the, the burden of proof has now been flipped again upside down, and our sports have to prove the impossible because that's, you cannot prove that. But why do you say it's impossible? I mean, World Rugby has done it. They've quoted a lot of research papers that aren't specifically focused on rugby. They're focused on the advantages of transgender well, women. Yeah, no, that's a good... Okay, so it depends on the standard of proof that you need. Mm. If And if or when, and I said I'm sure it's a matter of when, if the World Rugby policy was ever challenged, the level of our proof, the quality of our proof would be the point that they would attack because what they will say is that we have not proven that a transgender woman rugby player has an advantage compared to biological female rugby players. And we'll say, well, we've got these 13 studies that show pretty conclusively, without exception, that even after testosterone suppression, there is a retained advantage. And we will show that that advantage means faster, more powerful, stronger, heavier. We will show that those, risk, those four attributes size, power, strength, and weight are significant contributors to injury. And then they will say, but show me a case of a transgender rugby player who falls into that category. And we'll say, well, we're, we're deducing and we're, we're reading the literature and we think it's strong evidence. They'll, they'll say it's weak. So you see that there's a tug of war now around that evidence. And, and at some point it will fall upon or fall to someone to try to, evaluate whether the evidence is strong enough to uphold in a human rights claim. And that's where it yeah. gets really messy. And so the, the, the wording of this is so, so troublesome because the, the, the fundamental, and I read it again this morning, the fundamental problem here is that they, they talk about athletes in the singular. No athlete should be precluded. Athletes should not be deemed to have an unfair. So they want you to evaluate it on a case by case basis. 
that's that's a major problem. They sh- you shouldn't use, in my opinion, that language. What we should be saying here is, does the typical female have a disadvantage relative to typical male? Yes or no? Well, the answer is yes. Does the typical transgender woman have a reduction in those advantages sufficient to take away any unfair benefits? The answer is no. Therefore, in the typical case, the average case, the common case, it's very clear. But on a specific case, it's impossible to prove. Yeah. I'll give you another. So just one other one other example is I, I was, I'm here at this function with a number of coaches and I said to the guy last night after this came out is nobody disagrees that adults have advantages over children. But prove to me how big that advantage is. You say, okay, we'll go away and we'll take a thousand adults and a thousand 16 year olds and we'll let them do a host of different tests bench press, sprints, power, endurance, whatever you want to call it. And then we'll say, and what we'll find without doubt is that on average, the adults are stronger, faster, better endurance, more powerful, heavier, taller. But there will be 10% of those 16-year-olds who are faster than the adults, some of the adults. There'll be overlap between those populations. And that overlap is then going to be used as an argument well, it is being used in this case as an argument to say, well, then what's the problem? Because if mm-hmm. a trans if a trans woman isn't winning, why would you not want her to compete? Well, and and that's and that's the other thing. So this brings us on to the the, the other deep misunderstanding in this IOC document is they keep talking about sports will have to assess unfair, disproportionately large advantage. That is a meaningless concept because. When does it become disproportionately large? Yeah, because any advantage is an advantage, isn't it? Whether exactly. it's 2% or 50%. So so if I use a small motor on my bicycle, is that okay? As opposed, <laughs> as opposed to a big one. If I if I dope with a small amount of testosterone, is that fine? But a lot is not. So so the point is these things, these things are not uh, spectrum. They, they, are, they are binary. You either have mm. an unfair advantage or you don't. And they're... Their premise that you can somehow assess whether something is disproportionately large is outrageous. If, you, if you've got an athlete running in a 100-meter race and they move their starting blocks five meters forward, that's not fair. Whether they win or not doesn't matter. The outcome mm. doesn't determine fairness. The, the process does. And so you can't say that that athlete who's got a five-meter head start is okay because it's only a small advantage. But if they went 10 meters ahead, that's disproportionately large. That's basically what the IOC is asking sports to assess here, and it's not possible. So they've, they've, they've really painted the federations into a corner from which I can't see how they escape unless they take the world rugby approach and say, we're not interested in case by case. We don't care about overlap in these attributes between men and women. We know that typical male, typical female, elite male, elite female, scholarship winning male scholarship winning female we know they're different enough that we have to protect the female category for fairness and, and safety so that's that's where this thing goes now it's it's very frustrating just give us a a sort of maybe a an explanation there where, where dsd athletes sit the differences of sex right. development athletes as in castor semenia so castor semenia obviously born female and um, but obviously a high testosterone level which has been very well publicized across various media um in this case, is she then discriminated against as a 
high testosterone athlete or is she then for instance if she was a rugby player being able be able to play women's rugby for instance well so the the dsd case has actually revealed the, the problems with what they've put out yesterday so it's important to be very precise on the language there what you have there are individuals who are have the xy chromosome pair which is male they therefore have testes which is male they have high testosterone which is male but something something we'd call it downstream of the testosterone so how does the testosterone do its job in the body that's the problem so there's a there's a break in the chain as it were and so then what happens is that they develop female secondary sex characteristics so they don't and and in fact and primary and secondary so the, the genitalia appear female at birth and so they are often not always but often identified as girls even though they have all these biologically male attributes and then only when they get to puberty adolescence do these changes really start kicking in because they do still have testosterone that they can mm. use um so that's that's a very tricky situation and and what this guideline from the isc has done is it's grouped what they're calling sex variations that's the i guess the new word for dsds with transgender because they talk about these lists so they list them all so for instance they'll say um competitive advantage due to sex variations physical appearance and or transgender status so they're they're lumping them all together now in one yeah. pot they've also said that sports should not police testosterone levels they've said that the testosterone concentration, which, as we discussed before, is, is the target of the previous policy. That's now no longer what they advise. So now, if I was a DSD athlete, I'd be saying, hang on, um, you've just advised that what that you're currently excluding me on the basis of no longer be the exclusionary factor. <laughs> so, yeah. so now, basically, now the sport will have to once again show that these athletes have got, in the ISC's own words, a disproportionately large advantage. And again, I would put it to them, how would you say that Castor Semenya's is too large? And if another athlete with exactly the same condition came along as Castor Semenya, but was two seconds slower, would she be allowed, but Castor not? If, if you know, we spoke at the time of the Olympics, there's a Namibian sprinter, Christine Mboma. If she breaks the world record, is that sufficiently large? But if she's only coming third, is that is that okay? You see the dilemma they've created for themselves is yeah. you now you now have this arbitrary question of when is in when is an advantage too large? And that's the wrong approach. A, a fundamental point is is it an unfair advantage? And it's unfair if it belongs in a different category. That's the problem. And they and they haven't managed to get themselves to the point of saying that. And and in the case of Castor Semenya, I mean, does these guidelines potentially change what World Athletics have obviously tried to prove and basically pushed Castor Semenya out of her favorite distance and, and put her out of the game of athletics in many ways? But do you think these guidelines might influence the way that the member federations or the IOC might might see these guidelines changing? They've already said that they won't. So the aforementioned Sean Engel asked them that yesterday, I guess, on the on the call or just after. And they came out with a statement this morning saying that we will persist with our guidelines. We believe they're fit for purpose. They they mentioned, and I mean, this is true, that CAS had upheld them and the Swiss Tribunal had upheld them. Whether or not they survive the, uh, the Human Rights Court soon, I don't know when that's going to happen, but that's the next thing. And it'll, be, it'll actually be quite interesting now that this statement has come out if I'm Castor Semenya's lawyers preparing for a human rights case, I'm going with well, this as my 
exhibit yeah. A. So, but anyway, the, the point is that World Athletics have said that they're happy, and the IOC will be happy too because they have again they've 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 passed this along to the federation. So, if World Athletics say well, we're going to do what we've always done, the IOC will say we're fine with that just like they're fine with world rugby doing its thing and with anyone else who comes along and says, so, so, so I suspect most of the federations just don't have the capacity or the appetite or both to actually tackle this issue. And will probably say we will follow the previous guidelines until we are told otherwise. I mean, in rugby terms, is it just feels like a classic hospital pass, doesn't it? I mean, we, we're gonna we're gonna be seen as the bastions of all them, everything that's moral and inclusive, um, but the actual nitty gritty of trying to sort this issue out is now in your hands, federations, and we're kind of washing our hands of it. That's that's what it kind of feels like to me. Yeah, and I don't, and again, I don't mind that they've passed it on because, as I said, I think that it's actually sensible. How how does the IOC, who who's managing, I don't know how many sports there are dozens 50 i don't know um yeah how, how do, they, they don't have the capacity or expertise to juggle archery against taekwondo um so it does make sense that they've asked the federations to do it but the absence of strong direction and leadership is then the problem because that's what makes it a hospital pass it's not a it's not a viable helpful hand on <laughs> handoff it's a it's yeah. it's um you know whereas the sports council document that i alluded to they did it really well i think they they offered so much detail and they literally created a, a, a framework for how sports might assess this issue this this is muddled it's very i was going to say that that would be the that would probably be the right thing for the ioc to do is to create some sort of framework that allows people to make decision based on current science so maybe they they have a committee and i'm sure they do that allows that that allows federations to access the science needed to make the right decision but it doesn't feel I like that leadership is happening at all i suspect that they think that this is that framework and so yeah. we have we have a we have a i don't know mismatch in perception and expectation gap here between what they what they might have provided you know just again i, I i'm sorry to just bring it up again but it's it's so glaringly absent is the simple factual statement that. Lowering testosterone does not remove the male biological advantage. It, to not put that in there is a huge failure because now the sport has to take it on and say, what are we going to do without that key piece of information? And okay, the IC is not the sole source of that. And my hope is that documents like World Rugby's and, and more recently that Sports Council documents have made sports federations aware that the fix doesn't work. But there's just, um, you know, the, the absence, the absence of the, the strength to say that is a, yeah, disappointing. <laughs> What's interesting, I mean, I think, you know, for us in the sporting world, it's, uh, we've debated this and we've had podcasts on this in the past and we obviously read up a lot about it. And for many of the, the listeners of this podcast, they will probably have a fairly good understanding of the issues at hand this, but I'm always quite fascinated. And I, I guess it's not a really our ex area of expertise, but always fascinated by the, what's the word I'm looking for? The politically correct angle on this, where people without the knowledge seem to think that discrimination against transgender athletes is, the, is somehow discrimination against women's sport. When in fact, what people need to realize is that women's sport is in fact being affected and its credibility has been affected by this, this transgender issue, which is what people often forget. I, I do find that strange that in a, in a, 
a modern world, there seems to be this inability to understand the, the impact of this on women's sport, because it really is about protecting women's sport. It's, it's weird. It's, it's weird, yeah. right? Like when we, and, and I mean, they won't mind me saying this, but when we, when we met uh, at our transgender workshop to start this process, I think it's fair to say that many of the people on the, the panel who were going to make the decision came in with that same mindset that this is an issue about discrimination against trans athletes. And it's only when you start to explore it and then suddenly there's this realization that this is a colliding rights issue and that if you discriminate against one, you sorry, if you, if you don't discriminate against one, you're going to create discrimination against the other. And the, the perspective of women is the one that hasn't been listened to enough in this debate, in my opinion. We, you know, at the IOC, I don't think they canvassed in the, in the beginning. I think they only thought about it from one angle. Yeah. And I think they found it quite difficult to shake that angle. Whereas I think the Sports Council documents, and I can only speak for our processes, we, we really wanted to hear both perspectives of what is a colliding rights issue. I don't see how anyone can and you see this on social media all the time people will just climb into me or whoever saying like don't you care i say actually i I care a lot i just care about a different population maybe to you yeah i'm 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 as concerned about the fairness and safety and women's right and it is a right to have a safe fair place in sport yeah absolutely what was interesting the ioc claiming that they they consulted with 250 athletes and other stakeholders and uh, I think it would well, be quite nice for them to actually maybe name what those, who their stakeholders were and how they were involved in the process because it feels like, you know, was there a reasonable spread of people who are interested and invested in this process? Well, I, I, we, were, we were one of the stakeholders because when we, when we announced we were doing it, they contacted us. Uh, you mean, my, say, you mean World Rugby was, and that's what you're saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, um, yeah. then they contacted us and said we'd like to hear about your process and how it went and so we explained it to them and then when the decision came out in october we had another call with them and as i said they were very complimentary of our process and the method and even our outcome um in the sense that they wanted federations to do it and we were the first of their federations to go go it alone on this on this issue so we'd be among that um and even in those meetings, they did say that they consulted with others, but that's where that's where the, the infamous lack of transparency among sports federations is played out again. Because just just say who who did you consult with? Yeah. Um, what did they offer you? Like what were their positions? Because yeah, the the the, th- the thing about it is, I don't necessarily mind if someone says we think trans inclusion trumps all. We think that sports should reflect an accepting society and that we should have trans athletes and women's trans women and women's sport. I, I strongly disagree, but I, I can respect that someone has that position, but don't tell me that you're going to do that. And it's not unfair. Yeah. At least, at least be open and upfront. And so that's why if you, if we could see what the IOC considered, and we could see that they derived at this position of inclusion as the number one priority, despite the fact that they've heard about safety issues and inclusion issues, then at least we could assess it um, with a a, a degree of understanding. But when I see a statement like there should be no presumption of advantage, despite everything in the world that's ever shown us male advantage over women, I mean, 
It's yeah. just, it's a mess. You know what I find fascinating, and this is my sort of final thought on it, is that there seems to be, and maybe I haven't read enough around this topic, but there doesn't seem to be a lot of women's sporting groups that have come out in, first of all, protest against guidelines like this or in support of, you know, testosterone athletes not being able to participate in certain areas of sport. It almost seems like these women's groups, in a way, are, uh, women's sporting associations and federations seem a bit loath to come out and say, this is about protecting our sport. It seems to be in the hands of the, the, the federations, the national federations and, and people like yourself to come out and say it is. Yeah, so a couple, couple of stories to support that. When, when we did our policy, we emailed through the international rugby players. This is the group that represents the elite players. We, we sent an email out to all the international players in, in the world and we got 200 odd replies. And so many of them said, please don't put my name next to my response. Please keep this anonymous. <laughs> yeah. And none of them said, none of them said, I'm not prepared to speak out about this because I'm just really scared of the fallout. It, people are so scared. And then in support of that, uh, the UK sports documents was comprehensive. This is the one from a month ago. Mm. And there was a section in that document, one of the supporting documents that described the interview process. And one of the most startling things that should have really got, I think, more media coverage is that so many of the people who were interviewed said that they had been threatened with job loss, sponsorship loss, deselection if they were athletes, if they spoke against the prevailing social climate. And the prevailing social climate is inclusion of, of anyone. You know, it's accepted, which I think is cool, but it doesn't work in sport because of what we mm. just discussed. And so that was really startling. Uh, the report detailed how a number of the respondents broke down in tears. They said that they'd been threatened with dismissal and disciplinary action. So then you, then you start to understand why it is that people aren't willing to speak up. And then the other thing is that there are a number of groups now. There's a, there's a few of them, and they come in for so many attacks. There's, an, there's a senator in Australia who's contacted me a couple of times, and she's trying hard to fight that battle there. She has to put up with so much aggression and threats of violence and that sort of thing for her views oh. on this issue. Uh, similarly, there's a couple of groups. There's one in Australia, one in New Zealand, and they, they try so hard, but their voices are silenced by the, the people who have sometimes well-meaning because they, they really think it's about inclusion and they don't recognize that inclusion of one means exclusion of another. But sometimes it's actually it's actually quite vicious. It's a it's a it's the nastiest, most um, ugliest part of this this whole issue. Oh, and then there's a there's a woman called Kathy Devine who's worth following on Twitter. She's an academic researcher, and she published a paper two three months ago in which she described the fear and the reluctance of Olympic athletes to express their views on this matter. So it, it it's actually been documented. Is the point I'm trying to make. Yeah, so there is that genuine fear. I mean, we know when the Cassis Mini issue was going on, when athletes spoke up uh, against her, whether you agreed with that that decision or not, they, they were obviously often you know maligned very much on the media as being critical of her. And whether you supported that view or not, it was that they were def definitely put in the limelight. So I can imagine it was. Mm. It is scary to mention those sort of things in the current climate that we're in. You know, which is a tough place totally. to be, I guess. I mean, yeah, what is what is women's rugby? I mean, if you look at world rugby, is does does uh, women's rugby the 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 part of world rugby that looks after that? Did they come up in support of the guidelines for for world rugby as a women's rugby um, division? Cautiously, yes. They, yeah. they said we we uh, 
We fully support the process. We believe that the evidence has led to this decision and we are supportive of, of the decision. But it wasn't, it wasn't a glowing endorsement, I'll say that. Because you see, people are very, it's politically sensitive. They all want to be maybe, I don't know if it's a bit blunt to say politically correct. Whereas our focus was being scientifically correct. <laughs> yeah. So, and that's where the tension lies. I mean, that quote I started off by that um, IOC member talking about it's a complex matter and the social situation has changed. And that's what it is. It's tension between a social and a sporting um, scientific issue. But again, I just come back to it. It's only, it's only a tension if you don't understand that there's, this, there's a whole body of people that's affected by this when you do the socially right thing and then it's not that then maybe it's not socially right anymore why yeah. why should why should women take a step back in this issue and they've been told to but so so what i want to say is that two years ago there would not have been anything like the number of dissenting voices in response to that ioc document yesterday so the women's voice is growing yeah and and it's every time a every time a paper comes out like the sports council one i think it emboldens people to speak more and more and I don't know what happens next, but if if the Paris Olympics have anything like the, the the transgender discussion, and we know we had two transgender athletes in Tokyo by by Paris, maybe there's six by Los, where, where's 2020 at Brisbane, I think there'd be 12. Yeah. At some at some point, there will be a critical mass of opposing women's voices, and maybe that's what changes it. Yeah. Well, it certainly is a very hot topic at the moment. And if you want to share your thoughts, and we're obviously very keen to hear from people who might uh, not share our views on this, because you know we're always open to suggestion and uh, and anybody who can come along and suggest that maybe we, we've got it wrong here. But certainly, it, it seems like it is a fairly simple process. But maybe the IOC haven't got it quite right. Professor Ross Tucker, I know that you have to get back to your conference at World Rugby in the next couple of minutes and just squeeze in some lunch before that. But thank you very much for your time and. Uh, if you want to get hold of us on our social media, Sports Sci Pod is our podcast uh, is our podcast link on Twitter, and uh, feel free to uh, give us your support or thoughts or any other objections you might have about what we do. We love having some debate on our social media, and from us for now, it's goodbye. Thank you for listening to the Science of Sport podcast. Follow us on Twitter at Sports Sci Pod and on Instagram at Science of Sport Podcast. Yeah.